I'm going to take you to the book of Ruth today. And this is a story that really features not one, not two, but three women, all of which really experienced some pretty intense tribulation. All these women, uh, unfortunately, are well acquainted with pain and with sorrow. But the interesting thing is, not all these women respond in the same way. The response is different. Our focus for today is primarily going to be on the response. There's, there's a lot to the book of Ruth. Obviously, it's, it's, it's only four chapters, but for us, it would take months upon months to go through. So we're not going to do that. So understand, we're just gonna, I'm going to be highlighting some, some specific points today to draw out. Points that, I got to tell you, are, are, you know, this, this Women of the Bible series is so important on so many levels, especially with this generation that we're living in and these lessons that we're getting out of these things. They're not just for women. The men can glean from this stuff and then some. We need this stuff. And today is going to be evidence of that. We're going to learn another lesson. We need to hear this. And so I'm excited about this message. This is a good message uh, that we all need to take serious, um, knowing what is happening right now in this world. So with that said, we're going to break into this book, and we're going to start at the very beginning. In Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, this is what we read. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. Now this story, we're told of when this story happens. It's during the period of the judges. You have, of course, you have Moshe, and then you have Joshua and the elders, but then you, you get into the time of the judges, where the judges rose up and governed Israel, and then ultimately get into the period of the kings. This is before the period of the kings. This is in the, actually in the, the last, latter part of the period of the judges, roughly around 12th century BC. And so it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. A famine. Now we need to stop here, and I'm just by a show of hands. How many of you went through a famine? Anytime? Anybody? A lot of people been through a famine? Yeah, I didn't think so. It was a rhetorical question. So here's the thing. When you come up against something like this, we sometimes have to work harder. We have to take time. We have to step back to actually experience, to be a part of the experience, to sympathize, to understand the the gravity of the situation. This is such an example. If you've never been through a famine, now you need to stop. You need to ponder and say, well, what is a famine? And I can answer that. A famine is a plague, a horrific plague upon a land. It's one of the most horrific plagues anyone could ever go through. Here's the deal. When famine hits, people die. It's that simple. People die. Death, starvation, pestilence comes out of this. There's all sorts of ugliness that happens with famine. So this is no joke. This is a time of crisis. This is a time of tribulation. This is a time of uncertainty. And it's from this very event that all the other events that follow that we're going to read about today, it's, they happen because of this. So we're in a period of tribulation here. And then it goes on, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Yehuda, Bethlehem, Judah, where our, where our Savior, where the prophet said our Savior, the Messiah, the Mashiach would be born. And interestingly enough, or I should say ironically enough, Bethlehem means house of bread. Okay? House of bread. 
And then we move on. So there's a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. Here's our context. Hell has come to the land. Affliction, torment, it's famine. This Jewish family has to pick themselves up and they're, they have to move. Move out of their inheritance. Move out of the land that God gave them. And they had to go to the, Moab, the land of Moab or the Moabites. Now that's a little bit curious to me because I'll tell you why. There's some serious history here between Israel and the Moabites. And it isn't good. The Moabites are enemies of Israel. The Moabites were the very ones that came in and seduced Israel to commit fornication and to start worshiping demons. This is not good history. The Moabites were the ones that would not bring out bread and water to help Israel. This is where this Jewish family is being plucked up from their land of inheritance, land of milk and honey, and now they're taking up a residence amongst their enemies. Incredible when you, when you look at this context. And all of this, and we don't have time to hit on all these points, unfortunately, but these are all prophetic There's a lot of Bible prophecy embedded within this. Moving on to verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech. In Hebrew, it's Eli, it's a compound word, Eli and Melech. It means, my God is king. A profound name. And again, there's there's prophetic inferences here, uh, some of which we might cover later on. So his name's Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi or Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Machlon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites, not to be confused with Ephraimites. They're not of the tribe of Ephraim. These are Jews. They're from Judah. These are Ephrathites. And Ephratha, if you go back to Micah 5, is equated to Bethlehem. So they're Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Yehuda. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then we read this in verse 3. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. So let me get this straight. This family is, it has to move from their land of inheritance, from being around their, their extended family, all the rest of the people they know. They have to pick up because a horrific famine has hit the land. And then when they get to the land of their enemies and have to dwell in a total of foreign land, let me get this straight. Then Naomi loses her husband. See, I call that tribulation spiraling into more tribulation. Do you understand the despair, the loss of the spouse, and how that would affect her, her best friend? The very one that was her provider? Now, again, go back in the historical context. See, in those days, understand, women did not go out and make the living for the household. The wives were so dependent upon the husband to provide, to protect, to give them security. Very dependent. As much as I would say, is a, there, there's a mirror image here of how uh, the relationship is to be with the church in Christ. The church is to be totally, solely codependent upon Yeshua. And so very much so during these days, these Bible times, these wives were totally codependent upon their husbands. And that is taken away from her. And here she is stuck in the middle of nowhere in the land of her enemies. And now her husband's gone. 
This is painful to actually read this. In verse 4, Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they dwelt there about 10 years. This is where things get kind of interesting. So we learn that Elimelech, he dies. Naomi's left with her two sons. The very next thing that we read is what? They go and marry Moabite women. Becomes problematic when you go to the Torah. The Torah says this, Deuteronomy 23.3, an Ammonite or a Moabite. I want to stop here because these are descendants of Lot. Ammon and Moab, they're descendants of Lot, which was both of these situations happened through an incestuous relationship with, with Lot and his daughters. This is His daughters moved. They did so because they didn't have faith. And obviously, a, a different story for a different time. But you got to see that this is, this is the history to this. So the Ammonite and the Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord, Ad Olam, forever. Ever. Now you have to ask yourself, what does it really mean that, wait a second, that a Moabite is not to enter the assembly of the Lord? Are they not supposed to go to synagogue? Are, are they not supposed to take up residence amongst the Jewish people? What exactly is the Torah conveying? Well, this is where it gets interesting. When you go to the Targums, it tells you explicitly what this means. And I'm going to take you to the Targum version of this, the Aramaic translation. Neither an Ammonite nor a Moabite man is fit to take a wife from the congregation of the Lord's people. Nor unto the tenth generation shall they take a wife from the congregation of the people of the Lord. Do you understand? So when we go back here and we look at this command in the Torah, Moabites not to enter into the assembly of the Lord, we are talking about marriage. That's what we're talking about. The very thing that we see happening with Mahlon and Helion, taking Ruth and Orpah, this is not supposed to happen. And just so you can uh, appreciate the gravity of this command and how serious this command was taken, I want to take you to the book of Nehemiah. See, in Nehemiah's day, Jerusalem was returning to her glory. The Jewish people were returning from Babylon. They were coming back to Jerusalem, and the temple is being built. And, and Nehemiah is overseeing the, the wall of Jerusalem to be built back up. And the problem is, is as Nehemiah comes into town, he starts to see some things that are not right. And being a watchman, he starts to correct these things. He's seen one of these things was is he saw them defiling the Sabbath. And he absolutely lost it. He wasn't going to tolerate that the Sabbath would be defiled. And so he sets that in order. But then he sets something else in order. And this is what we read. In Nehemiah 13:23, in those days I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. He's looking at Jews marrying Moabites. How does he respond? This is how he responds. So I contended with them and cursed them. How often do you see righteous men coming out of the gates to curse their own brethren? You just don't typically see this. But Nehemiah is doing this. He struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God saying, you shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. 
This is how serious this command was taken. Nehemiah got physical with the people. Start slapping them around. I mean, be glad I haven't gone Nehemiah on you. Amen? We have Judy for that, right? Oh, oh. if you don't know Miss Judy, you don't know how funny that was. Oh. So, going back to Ruth chapter 1, verse 4. Soak this in. You need to soak how serious this is. And there is, it's interesting. There are so many, I mean, I'm not going to get into it, but there are so many commentaries that could not be farther from reality. It's not even funny uh, in regard to this situation. It's really something interesting. But if you don't understand the clear and unambiguous command that the Torah has given and what we're reading on the screen right now, you're going to miss the punchline of the whole story and the gravity of it. So soak this in, and we'll circle back to this. Continuing on to verse 5. Then both Machlon and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. you got to be kidding me. So here is this poor Naomi, this Jewish woman, who had to abandon her land to go to where there's food, experiencing this horrible tribulation of famine, being uprooted from her land and brought to a pagan land, only to when she gets there, we're told she loses her husband. Well, you know what? When you lose your husband, again, you're dealing with, with provision and security and, and protection. You're dealing with these things that you're losing, but that was okay. You know what? Naomi could fall upon her sons because her sons would step up and support mom. They're Ema. They would support her and protect her, but wait. Now her sons are gone. Not one. Naomi didn't lose one son and have one left. Her whole family's wiped out. And now she's living in the land of her enemies. Let that sink in for a moment. And the pain and the suffering and the grief that this woman is going through. You look at Naomi's life, and I'm going to tell you, it is a reflection of Job's situation. That in one day, he lost everything. He lost all his his investments, he lost his cattle, he lost his people, he lost his family. Everything taken away. This is where Naomi's, I can't even begin to imagine what this poor woman was feeling at that time. I mean, she is trying to process something she was never created to experience. We were never created to experience death. It's not why God created us. Yes, it exists because of sin. But man, getting, taking out your whole family, and, and let me take it a step further. You know, something else that really was valuable. I mean, all you need to do is read the Torah, and you know this. Heritage. Heritage. Both of her sons were childless. Ruth and Orpah were barren. There's no grandson for, he, for her even to look upon and say, well, we still have an heir. There's nothing This is where we're at in the story. Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard that 
She had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord, Jehovah, had visited his people by giving them bread. So word gets out, the Lord's come back to show favor to his people. And now there's bread in the land. And guess what? Naomi wants to go home. She wants to go home. She's had enough. In verse 7, Therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. Now listen to this, because this is pivotal. They went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Not she. They. You getting this? Orpah, Ruth, and Naomi. All together unified, we're going back to the promised land. They are making their way. If you miss this, again, this is going to be, this is so catastrophic to the, to the end result of what we're going to get to. You have to download this. This is something that's so overlooked. But this is the reality of our story. Going on in the next verse, we read, And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each to her mother's house. Now, I want to be clear, and this will be vetted out as we continue. Understand something. Naomi is not sending away her daughters-in-law because she can't stand the sight of them. You know, she's like, well, now that, you, you know, my sons have gone, you know, I, I'm just going to tell you, I really couldn't stand you this whole time. You're a hindrance to me. And we know how the relationships can work with the in-laws, right? And so, and I won't go there, but I have good in-laws. So, um, but it isn't a situation either that Naomi is, and listen to me carefully, she's not ashamed. She, keep in mind, she's going back to her Jewish people. She is not ashamed to be bringing along two Moabites with her, as some would suggest that, well, this is why she said, hey, you know, I'm just, I'm trying to get rid of you. I'm going back home and I'm trying to get rid of you. Understand something, that is not what is going on. And you will see that. Actually, in the next part of this verse, this is what we read. Yehovah, deal kindly with you. This is the beginning of some interesting stuff. Naomi is blessing her daughters-in-law. She wants to bless them. That's why she's sending them away. And this is the beginning of the blessing. Yehovah, deal kindly with you. Why? As you have dealt with the dead and with me. Oh, just stop right here and take that in. Notice when we were dealing with the Lex Talionis, we're dealing with the golden rule. She's coming out of her. This is the testimony of Naomi. And what she testifies is that Ruth and Orpah, I cannot express that strongly enough. Ruth and Orpah were loving women who loved and honored their husbands they didn't just love and honor their husbands. They loved and honored their in-laws. They honored Elimelech. They honor Naomi. This is one tight, loving, unified family. And more than that, I will tell you this, and you will see this. Orpah and Ruth worshiped the God of Israel. There's no debate. They worshiped the God of Israel. And so this is this, is this family. This is a powerhouse family. This is a tight-knit family. Moving to verse 9. The Lord grant that you may find rest. Naomi's going on in her blessing to bless her daughters-in-law. Each in the house of her husband. She kissed them 
And they lifted up their voices and wept. All three of these women came together because they love each other so much. And they were weeping just at the thought of separating from one another. It was painful. Listen to me. It was painful for Naomi. It was painful for Orpah and Ruth. They didn't want this. Verse 10. And they, meaning Orpah and Ruth, they said to her, surely we will return with you to your people. We're not leaving. We are not leaving you. We will make the journey to go to the promised land together. Huge. This is prophetically significant. And then Naomi is going to respond in verse 11. But Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Notice she calls them her daughters. She's going to do this three times. Turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? No, turn back my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope. Listen to these words. This is a broken woman. She is broken. If I should say, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much. For who? For their sakes. This is what Naomi is saying. So that you understand her heart. She is grieved for their sakes that what? That the hand of the Lord has gone out against her. In other words, Naomi is convinced her, get away from me. The hand of the Lord has come out against me and you got caught in the wake. And now your husbands are dead. Now, this is another moment that as you look at how some commentators choose to comment on this passage and where Naomi's at, it makes my eye twitch. It actually angers me. I get angry when I read these things and I'm like, oh, it's painful. For example, there are people out there that look and read what, what is said right here as Naomi is bitter towards God. She's turned her back on God. She's allowed the pain and the anguish to overtake her. And now she's essentially cursing God and blaming God for all her problems. Listen to me, that is garbage. That is not what is happening right now. This statement that she is making is appropriate. You remember when Lot, Lot, or Lot when Job lost everything? And one day his family said, what did Job say? The Lord gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives, he takes away. We know the Torah says he kills and he makes alive. We know that he wounds and he heals. Make no mistake, Naomi's statement is very appropriate. And yes, she's wrestling with her as she should. She's entitled to wrestle with this situation. She's trying to comprehend something that none of us were meant to comprehend with the loss of her family. All of them, not even a son left to her. And she loves her daughters so much, she wants to send them away. She is blessing them. And, you, and here's the proof that Naomi hasn't abandoned the living God. She's blessing them in the name of the Lord because she confesses him as the one true God. Now, if Naomi was bitter and was going to abandon the Lord, she'd be blessing him in some other name of some other God. That is not what is happening. 
And so it's important we do not distort this story because you miss so many things along the way. Moving on to verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. This is where things turn south. See, this is a kiss goodbye. This is a kiss of death. And I'm going to tell you it's a kiss of betrayal. We've seen a kiss like this when Judas gave Yeshua a kiss. That was a kiss of betrayal. It was a kiss goodbye. Unbelievable. We'll spend more time on that. But for now, we're going to focus on that, on this. But Ruth clung to her. She clung. She was, wouldn't let go. And here's the thing. When you look at the law of first mention, you can go back to the book of Genesis, right in the second chapter, chapter 2, I think, verse 24. And it says, a, a, a man shall leave his mother and father and be devoc, joined, cling to his wife. That is the very Hebrew word used when Ruth is doing this to Naomi. She is clinging, devoc. And what is that? When, when a husband and wife come together, they become echad. They become one. This is, this is mind-blowing because you're getting this mind-blowing picture prophetically of what the Lord would do with the Jew and the Gentile. You have a Gentile clinging on to a Jew. This is deeply prophetic, deeply profound, spiritually significant, absolutely amazing. You think about, well, here it is right here. What is our theme verse? Zechariah 8.23 Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from every language of the nation shall grasp the slave of a Jewish man saying, let us go with you, for we've heard that God is with you. Gentiles clinging to these Jews. Why? We've heard that God is with you. Understand this, and un- that this is not just about Ruth's love for Naomi, and it is. We can say that, but it goes way beyond that. She knows that the God of Israel is the only true God. And she's not going to let go. And it's so amazing because as we go to Scripture, we find this replaying over and over again, all these righteous and awesome men of God who are doing the same thing Ruth is doing. For example, Jacob, as he, we're told, he wrestles with the angel. That is Yeshua. Well, listen to what Genesis 32, 26. Yeshua says this. He said, let me go for the day breaks. Now, you can't make this up here. Yeshua is literally telling Jacob, let me go. What is Naomi telling Ruth and Orpah? Let me go. Go back to your people. Let me go. And how does Jacob respond? I will not let you go unless you bless me. Clings. He clings. The Song of Songs. As you go there, you have the Shulamite, who is representative of Israel, of the church, seeking her beloved, seeking Yeshua. That's who she's seeking. Well, we read this. Scarcely had I passed by them, meaning the Shulamites passing by the watchman, when I found the one I love, and I held him and would not let him go. I clung to him. The Torah says this. 
in Deuteronomy 30, 20, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, oh, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life. Do you understand what Ruth is doing? She's clinging on to the Lord for her own life's sake. She knows, and we are called, we are called to be Ruth's. Amen? Ruth is unwilling to let go of the truth. She is unwilling to abandon the hope of eternal life. She's not going to walk away from the promises of God. Won't do it. And keep in mind, what is the context? Hellish tribulation. She herself has gone through, and the things that she has witnessed happening to Naomi. Are you kidding? She's seen it all. Going to verse 15. And she said, this is what Naomi says, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Interesting. See, here's proof. And listen to me carefully. Orpah was on the narrow path. Orpah was in the faith. Orpah believed. Orpah loved the Lord God of Israel, and she loved her neighbor as herself. She honored her husband. She honored her in-laws. She had joined herself to Israel. She joined herself to the Jewish people. And proof is in the pudding, as they say. Look at this verse. What does Naomi testify? She has gone back to her people and to her gods. You can't go back to your gods if you never left them. She left those gods to be joined to this awesome Jewish family. Eli Melech, Naomi, and her husband was Chilion. She was walking the walk. What happened? What happened to Orpah? Something happened to her. There's a lot in this narrative that needs to be extracted. And I'm going to tell you what happened. It's what we know, what we're given in the story. Tribulation, pain, sorrow. Do you not think that the adversary was whispering in her ear? Do you not think that? As, you know, all she knows is here she comes, Orpah comes into this Jewish family. She starts serving the God of Israel. She joins herself to the Jewish people, and all she sees is hell, sorrow, suffering, and pain. And that is the perfect opportune time for the enemy to whisper and say, you got to get out of here. You haven't been blessed. This is, there's nothing here for you. This God is doing nothing for you. You know what you've experienced. You see what's happening to these people that all cry out to the God of Israel. It's interesting because this is exactly what happened to Israel. As Jeremiah the prophet is going out and telling his people, get your hearts right, return, repent, turn from your wicked ways. The Jewish people wouldn't have any of it in his, in his uh, generation. Listen to this. Listen to what we read, because this is Orpah. But we will certainly do whatever has gone out of our mouth to burn incense to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her as we have done, we and our fathers, our kings and our princes, in the cities of Yehuda and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food. We're well off and saw no, no trouble you understand? We had financial prosperity. We weren't in need. We weren't afflicted. As long as we were worshiping this queen of heaven, we were blessed. 
Oh, it's interesting. It goes on and says this, but since we stopped burning incense to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. Nothing but hell to pay when we come into the faith. This is what the Jewish people are recognizing. So they're like, we're done. We're done with that. Welcome to Orpah's world. See, Grief and pain and sorrow got the better of her. She started, unfortunately, the grief and the pain, that became more real than the promises of God. And I'll tell you right now, as we are embarking on the birth pains of the tribulation and as things are going to intensify and more and more, if your pain and your sorrow becomes more real and more tangible than the promises of God, you will go the way of Orpah. You will compromise. It will come. Ruth is immovable. This woman believes in the promises of God. Doesn't matter what circumstances she's up against. Orpah, not so much. Orpah, when you look at her, I want you to hear me carefully. This woman is a template for an apostate end time church that will fall away. A church that will compromise. A church that when things get hard, they run. They abandon ship. When we read this in Matthew 13, 20, Yeshua speaks to this. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself. Or you could say she, Orpah, had no root in herself, but endures only for a while. Why is that? Ah, for when tribulation and persecution arises because of the word, immediately he or she stumbles. Welcome to Orpah. I was just reading to my kids last night, getting into uh, the pastoral epistles and reading 1 Timothy. And in 1 Timothy 4, it says, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times... Some will depart from the faith. Why will they depart from the faith? Because they will give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Why did Orpah depart from the faith? For that very reason. Giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. I want to take you to the Apocrypha. There's a passage, one of my favorite passages in the Apocrypha. I have a few, but this is definitely near the top. Because it gives us a valuable warning. It is relevant to us right now. It is relevant to our story. This is what it says. My child, when you come to serve the Lord. And what does that mean? When, it come, when you come into faith, when you're going to commit your life to Yeshua and say, I'm going to follow you. I will pick up my cross and follow you. When you come to serve the Lord, prepare yourself for testing. And the way you look at it today, as Christians are coming in with this pseudo-gospel, they're preparing themselves for vacation. They are. You come into the faith, know this. You're coming into a family that is persecuted. You are going to see trials and tribulations. You will be tested. Abraham was tested. Was he not? Joseph tested. Job tested. All these tests I'm looking at are nightmare scenarios. 
Paul was tested. Peter was tested. Hezekiah was tested. You want to come into the faith? You want to have the privilege of following Yeshua and accepting that beautiful gift of grace? I'm going to tell you this. Prepare for war. Prepare for war because it's coming. And and the testing, if it wasn't enough just to say, hey, you're going to be dealing with some serious stuff. Stuff's going to be thrown at you. You're going to have hard times. You're going to be afflicted. You're going to be persecuted. There will be trials and tribulations. If that weren't enough, then we also know, according to the Torah, there's another aspect by which God is going to test us, and it's through false prophets. Read Deuteronomy 13. False prophets, false teachers, even people who are close to us coming to try to convince us to walk away from the Torah to walk away from the commandments of God. In this, you're coming into the faith, prepare for war. Verse three, cling to him and do not depart. Our theme. This is, this is what we're being advised. You cling to Yeshua, do not depart, so that your last days may be prosperous. See, this is the insight that Ruth had. Reason she's not letting go because she knows what's going to happen in the end. She knows the blessing. She knows the promises of God. She clings to the promises of God. Her environment and the things that she goes through does not depict her character. She rises above. Verse 4. Accept whatever befalls you. you know, I read that literally immediately and I said, that's easy for you to say. It's easy to read that. It's a different thing to do it, to experience it, to go through it. Accept whatever befalls you. And in times of humiliation, what? Be patient. I love Revelation 14, uh, verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Messiah Yeshua. What does it mean to have patience? It means that, that you endure he who endures to the end, Yeshua says, will be saved, Matthew 10, 22. You will be saved. Well, what does that mean to endure? It means to hold fast to the testimony that Jesus is Lord, and don't you dare forsake his commandments. I don't care if your work is telling you, you got to go get vaccinated. I don't care if people are trying to seduce you to come in. It's okay to sin a little bit. Oh, it's okay to look at porn a little bit. It's, no, it's not. Somebody just sent me something. It was... Just mind-blowing, disturbing to me of a pastor telling people, you can pray while you're watching porn. Things have officially gone off the rails. Absolutely insane. I'm telling you guys, prepare for war. For gold is tested in the fire and those found acceptable in the furnace of humiliation. Who wants to get thrown into the furnace of humiliation? Not I. Be prepared. Because the furnace of brokenness, the furnace of despair, the furnace of tribulation, it comes. And you need to be ready for it. Getting back to our story. Naomi says to Ruth, she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back after her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But now Ruth is going to respond to that statement. Entreat me not to leave you. 
or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Oh, your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. The declaration is so spiritual, it's so revelatory, it's so prophetic, it's so profound, it blows the mind. But it really blows the mind when you look at this statement in context of what? Of what the Torah said. Do you remember the command? The Torah said, no Moabite shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. And here you have this Moabite who, according to the Torah, is not to enter ever into the assembly of the Lord, declaring the Lord to be her God and Jewish people her people. Now, let me ask you, how does that happen? With man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. That shows you the power of God's grace and his faithfulness and his mercy to those who turn to him. You know, uh, Peter, in Acts chapter 10, he says, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness will be accepted by him. Every nation. The reason Ruth can make a declaration like this is because she's not a Moabite in the eyes of the Lord. She has denounced her people. She has denounced her God to cling to the one true God of Israel, and she'll be as a native of the land. This is incredible. I mean, you want to talk about removing the curse of the law through the power of the cross? This is an awesome thing. And so Ruth and Naomi, they're going to make their way back to Bethlehem. Orpah abandons ship, but Ruth clings to her. And they go together to the promised land. And when they get there, as you get into chapter 2, Ruth goes into a specific field to glean. It's harvest time. She goes to glean, and there's somebody who owns the field takes special notice of her. Keep in mind, everyone knows she's a Moabite. And that man... Is, is Boaz, the owner of this field. Well, check this out, because we're going to build on this. So she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground, and said to him, meaning Boaz, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? I'm a Gentile. And you can go through the whole Torah, you can go through Scripture. God separated the Jewish people from the rest of the world. Bottom line. And she's an odd, why why are you taking notice of me? Here's why. Verse 11. And Boaz answered and said to her, it has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you have left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. Who does this sound like? It's Abraham. Ruth has done the exact same thing that Abraham did. The Lord plucked him up from his people, from his land, from his God, to bring him out to a place he knew not where he was going. He had to move in faith. I mean, this, is, this, this woman, this Ruth, she truly is a daughter of Abraham. Remember what Yeshua said to certain Jews in John chapter 8? If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works that Abraham did. Ruth does the works that Abraham did. This kind of faith 
and commitment, it drew the attention of Boaz, who, prophetically speaking, when we look at this, is the image of Yeshua. It's the image of Yeshua. Okay, so you want Yeshua's attention? You have to forsake all that you have and follow him. Unless you forsake all that you have, you cannot be his disciple. That is impossible. Ruth has done this. She counted the cost. She counted the cost. Moving on to verse 12. The Lord repay, this is Boaz telling her, the Lord repay your work and full reward be given to you. By who? By the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. You want the testimony of what I'm telling you that Ruth served the God of Israel? Comes right out of Boaz's mouth. He tells each and every one of us why Ruth is there. She came to be under the shadow of his wings, the God of Israel. This goes way beyond my mother-in-law's situation. Okay, way beyond that. She is looking at salvation, eternal salvation. Israel has the only true God. And she knows it. In verse 13, Then she said, Let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. She's not. She's a Moabite. And yet Boaz, this image of Yeshua, speaks gently and kindly. Why? Because she moved to love the God of Israel. And and you know what? You, you, You want your mind blown here. We know what the Torah says, right? The Torah, Deuteronomy 23, verse 3, makes it very clear. No Moabite shall enter the assembly. That means intermarriage. What is the next thing as you go through the book of Ruth and read, Boaz takes Ruth as wife. One of the most honorable men mentioned in scripture, key. He's the line of David. It's interesting. The son that Boaz and Ruth have was Obed. And then you get into the time of Jesse, and then you get to King David. Yeshua comes through this line of where a Moabite and a Jew came together. Mind-blowing. This is the power of his mercy and grace and restoration when you submit your heart. The impossible becomes possible. And you need to be like a Ruth, not like an Orpah. You need to believe in the promises and you need to know how good the God of Israel is, how good Yeshua is. And he will speak kindly and he will speak gently when you bring all your shame, when you bring all your failures, all your screw-ups, when you bring them to him, he will speak kindly. And he'll bring healing, he'll bring redemption, he'll bring forgiveness of sins. It's such a beautiful thing. And there's so many other aspects that we could talk about this story, as you look at Elimelech, uh, you know, getting into the prophetic, I, I shouldn't even bring this up because it sparks all sorts of other conversations, but Elimelech, my father, my God, is king. That's what his name means, my God is king. And, and he was so central to everything that happens. The reason Boaz ends up taking Ruth as wife, it's through leveret marriage. And so you have Elimelech and then Machlon, And when you read the story, you will see all the names of the sons being exalted because Boaz comes in and performs leveret marriage. And so that the name of Elimelech, the name of Machlon, and even Helion lives on. Now that is mind-blowing because when you look at 
at what happened with Elimelech as Machlon, they died. They died. It's interesting. And Boaz is as a representation of the resurrection of Yeshua. There's pictures of Yeshua here and how this would work. Absolutely crazy. Um, but we won't get too deep into that. Uh, at some point, I would like to circle back and we'll, we'll dig into this book, which will take several, several months. <laughs> but uh, I want to end on this verse. Let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Orpah lost heart. Ruth did not. And these are, these are, these are the decisions. You decide whether you want blessing or whether you want cursing. Orpah went on to be cursed because she gave in. She gave up. But Ruth went on to be blessed to the point the Messiah comes through the lineage of a Moabite. It's unbelievable because she was no longer a Moabite. She was considered one with Israel. Amen.